to put our trust in you. Um, I ask a blessing on all of us in our efforts in these readings to give ourselves to what we learn. Not to be smart, just not to know things. To take what we're learning and bring them into our lives and make them real in what we do with each other. I ask a blessing, Linda, I'm sorry, the, for Kathleen's daughter. Mm -hmm. Kathleen Kelly's daughter. Um, prepare her to um, leave this world and to be received and let all those who love her know that that's what's happening. To be glad for what's about to happen. And I'm sorry, who, um, who else? <coughs> Fire yeah, sorry, Ben. <coughs> um, watch over the people in California. <coughs> um, help them to be sensible. Um, let a rain come to help with those fires. Um, and meanwhile, while it's here, there, um, help people to take care, particularly protect the firefighters. Um, watch over them keep them safe in the many ways in which they will risk their lives. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. It's funny that you would have said that. I have a hard time praying for anybody in California these days. So for you to ask that took a while. I don't know if I should have said that, but... All of you, <laughs> all of we've got the murder in the cathedral copy. If you all have them, so if you um, <clears throat> and we've got um, Anthony Cleopatra for anybody who doesn't have it. Where's the other one, Doc? Sorry, is this one? Did you start it? It's already started. Let's start. Let's God, start. Did Hawthorne and Chaucer's daughter become a nun? Because you were talking about both of them, and you said Chaucer's daughter. Oh, sorry. Was sorry. Hawthorne. Hawthorne. Oh, okay. yeah. okay. Very Puritan community. I mean, it's New England. It's it's it. We're going back to God. Thing. Going back to Hawthorne is going back to that world that we experienced in Meldale. Very Protestant. The sacraments are gone. Very respectable. Very respectable, and very self-righteous. You know, it's this Protestant sense of respectability that so grips hold of people. Um, Hawthorne grew up under it, so did Melville. I mean, you know Melville just shattered that world with Ishmael, and um, Hawthorne's going to do it here. We just hap we happen to know this is a piece of biographical information that his daughter converted and became a Catholic. She speaks about her father really fondly. He says of him that he's a very sensitive man, and you know that by his writings because his writings are—they just get through surfaces, you know. And anyway, let's start, okay? What I want to do today um, is um, read two poems and then try to do a quick review covering *All's Well* and *Merchant*. Next week we will do *Othello*. So next week I'll go back to Merchant a little bit to pick up the Venetian world and then conclude. If you want, if you want reading to do this week, read Othello. Um, it's a painful, it's a painful book to read.
truly painful. Um, it's, it, it's one of the few tragedies that we've read. Um, then we'll do Anthony and Cleopatra, and, and then we'll get to Scarlet Letter. Can you take out your um, Shakespeare sonnets? Okay, um, Shakespeare sonnet. Tonight I want, or you know, today, 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 this morning, I wanted to go back and reread one of the sonnets that we've already done. Um, just for its relevance to the work that we're doing, but I wanted to read another just to show you something poetic. Um, <coughs> I want to do um, 129 and 146. Take a look at 116 before we do 129. And I'd like everybody to do this while we read, okay? Watch, here, pay real close attention here. Watch the way um, the, the line, the, the sentence structures um, almost always conform to the line ends, the lengths of the line. So when you come to the end of a line, you're coming to the end of a sentence or a rhetorical pause. Not always, but generally speaking. So as you hear a poem like 116, which is about, it's a meditation on love, what you hear is a slow down pace. It's a meditative spirit, a meditative pace. Yeah? So that, the, the, what happens between the poem and the line length is not an accident. It shows Shakespeare as a musician. He's using the line lengths just like a, a composer would use measures. Okay? To control the pace, the spirit, because the poem is meditative. I'll just, I'll just give a couple of examples. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love, something of a rhetorical pause. Love is not love, which altered when its alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is a never fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. The lines are fairly even. The line endings are, are um, semantic endings. They, they bring to a close a thought or pause for a moment before they go over. There are what, what are called run-ons. Some lines run over because Shakespeare wants the sentiment to run on. But generally, the, the, the sentiment be, being expressed is contained within line lengths. Okay? You get the same thing with um, 73. That time of year thou mayest in me behold when yellow leaves are none or few to hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold bare room choirs where late the sweet words sang. In me thou seest the twilight of such day as after sunset fedeth and the rest, which by and by black night doth take away the second self that seals up all in rest. You can see that there's almost a rest 
at the end of lines. Not always, sometimes there's a run over. But the lines are even, the meaning corresponds with the length of the line, so it's, it's steady, it's even, it's controlled. Um, we feel a measured meditative spirit. <laughs> so the words are appropriate for the spirit of a meditation. It's an expression of love. Okay, everybody follow? Now take a look at this. In all of these poems, remember the lyric tends to be an expression of something inside the, the poet's heart, the love he feels for a mistress, the beloved. So the lyric is all generally is in the I person. Okay? This is not small. It's like God saying, I am the end. We go inside the interior of the poet. The action that takes place is there, inside. In a narrative, you all know, in a narrative, the, the, the poet is speaking about something going on outside. <coughs> I'm going to give something away here. A begetting <clears throat> takes place. Another character comes into being. Right? In, in, in Hawthorne's Scarlet Letter, he's going to talk about Dimsdale and Hester. So the poet's mind is not on himself, his own invisible interior, it's others. A begetting takes place. In drama, something's presented with no poet telling. The play is just presented on its own terms. Does anybody see any links to anything mysterious in our belief there? The Trinity. I'm going to go there, but it's, it's the inner I. I am the begetting. Another from within the poet, and the thing presented on its own term as if it were a gift, stood given. I don't want to go there. That was the topic of the book I just wrote. <laughs> anyway, so the lyric is typically an expression of, it's, we, we get into the interior of a poet. He's expressing what he feels for generally the beloved. It can be lots of things, but generally it's the beloved. So you've got, let me not to the marriage of two minds. Um, that time of year thou mayest in me behold when love, you know, this thou perceivest which makes thy love more, more strong to love that well which thou must leave ere long. He's saying, uh, we're about ready to leave the world. We have to love ourselves because we have so little time left. So hold on to that. Now you've got this Sonnet 129, okay? <coughs> He opens with a definition, and then watch what he does. Sonnet 129. The expensive spirit in a waste of shame is lust in action. Until action, lust is perjured, murder, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, rude, cruel, not to trust. Now watch the oppositions. This, this, against each other. Enjoyed, enjoyed no sooner, but despised straight. Past reason hunted. No sooner had, past reason hated, as a swallowed bait. On purpose laid, to make the taker mad, mad in pursuit, and in possession so. Had having and in quest to have extreme, a bliss in proof, and proved a very woe, before a joy proposed, behind a dream. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven, that leads men to this hell. What's he doing with the structure of the poem? I don't, this is not an English class, so I don't take a lot of time, but what, 
How is this different from what I was just describing in the other poems? The lines are broken, they're fragmented. He's setting up tension in the second and third quatrains, enjoyed no sooner, but that is, lust is the expense, it's a waste of spirit in a waste of, the expense, it's the expending of spirit in a waste of shame. It's, it's a wasted act, is lust in action, till action lust is perjured, murder, bloody, savvy. That is what he's doing is imitating the action, the passion of lust. Yeah? Remember when we talked about the contrapasso in Dante? The contrapasso actually revealed the nature of the sin? You all remember? <laughs> the winds passing or the in the mud or... The, this poem is like that. It, it's, it's an expression of what's invisible. And it, in Automanapoeic, it's imitating that action. We can hear it, feel it. Perjured, murderous, bloody, full of blame, savage, extreme, cruel. I mean, it's just fragmented, choppy, passionate. Enjoyed no sooner. As soon as we have it, engage in lust, we hate it afterwards, ashamed. Past reason hunted, we pursue it madly. No sooner do we have it, past reason hated. We hate it beyond reason, as a swallowed bait. On purpose laid to take the make, to make the taker mad. It's like a bait to us. It eager, you, but the, who does, does this remind anybody of anybody we've read recently? <coughs> How about Bertram? I mean, can, is there any other way to describe that man? I mean, you made all the appeals that he was making to Diana, you know, promising everything, the allure, the beauty, and, and as soon as she comes to court to confront him, he denies her, casts her off. He would have done that anyway. I mean, he would have just left her. A bliss in proof. In the moment, it seems like a bliss and proved a very woe once it's over. Before a joy proposed, oh, this is what I want, behind a dream, an illusion. All this the world well knows, yet none knows well to shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. What's the paradox in that last line? To shun the heaven that leads men to this hell. There's no way out. Well, it, when you're in, heaven, yeah. when you're in the throes of lust, I'm thinking <coughs> primarily of men, but I think women, even if they're not as taken by lust, they have their inordinate desires, whatever they happen to be. When we look at something we want, don't we treat it as a heaven? That's the final good. If I could only have this, it's a pleasure. We want to rest in it. But as soon as we do something like this, when it's illicit, when it's lust, or and in, let's say it's a, the inner, inordinate desire in a woman for whatever she wants, once you have it, it's a hell because what's behind it are all these disordered emotions that just. So <clears throat> it's a an amazing poem because of the way it imitates the action of lust. It just. Okay, 146. We've already done this, but just it's good to hear these poems again. Remember what Father said today in, in Paul's letter about the flesh, and, and I wish he'd said something more, but um, because I don't think by flesh Paul means the body. Paul didn't hate the body, um, but our, the attraction, the, the two worldly things, and remember the general things are power, 
pleasure, um, wealth, image, honor, that, that we want to do something to make people honor us, to be respected. So those are the dominant things that we attach ourselves. They're all good. The trouble is that we make too much of them. Power, wealth, image, pleasure. By sinful earth, Shakespeare would have had those things very much on his mind. It's the way in which we allow attachments to worldly things, physical things, to rob our soul, to take away our soul. It's like a trade-off. Sonnet 146, Poor soul, the center of my sinful earth, my sinful earth, these rebel powers array, all these gay things that we put on that are actually in rebellion against the deeper things inside of us. <clears throat> my sinful earth, these rebel powers array, why dost thou pine within and suffer dirt, painting thy outward wall so costly gay? Why so large a cost, having so short a lease, dost thou upon thy fading mansions spend? Shall worms, inheritance of the success, eat up thy charge? Is this thy body's end? By the way, the, the, uh, I, when we read it on Monday, I think it was Monday morning or maybe over the weekend, we had the reading um, in which Christ gives the parable of the guy who had stored up all his wealth and wanted to keep storing them up and said, I can't do it, I don't have enough room. So his answer was to build more barns. <laughs> and Christ was saying, you're not going to take it with you. You're going to keep store up all this stuff. Um, we're leaving it behind. Um, um, so shall worms, inheritors of this excess, eat up thy charge? Um, is this thy body's end? Then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, the body's loss. If you're going to take, if you're going to live, live by denying the body, because to the extent that we don't, we're caught by the world. And so live, then so live thou upon thy servant's loss, and let that pine to aggravate thy store. That is, let the body grieve while you increase um, thy store, that is, spiritual things. By terms divine in selling hours of dross, within be fed, without be rich no more. So shalt thou feed on death that feeds on men, and death once dead, there's no more dying then. Is everybody clear in that paradox, that final paradox? Can anybody just paraphrase it simply? <laughs> Barbara, can you paraphrase it? <laughs> Come on. I'm studying. <laughs> uh, the only thing I can think of is, and death once dead, there's no more dying. It's a, it's a false wanting. We want things that really aren't going to help us. Yeah. It's an encouragement, I think, towards renunciations give up these things and defeat death. By giving them up, we take away its power over us, and by doing that, we become united with Christ, who is life itself, and live. So instead of doing the things that separate us from Christ, um, give up the world and the claims, the attachments that we have on it, do away with death, and to the extent that we do that, 
we um, live more fully in him. Is it also an allusion to what Christ said? Go ahead, Doug. That, um, or maybe people said it about him, that he defeated death, and so there's no more death, there's no more dying. Um, we can live we can live forever now because Christ... But related to, to the specifics of the poem? I just wondered if it was an allusion to that, that thought. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if I, if I think, yes, what, I think what Dr. said, right, to link it to the poem, it would be uh, by, by giving up ourselves, by denying ourselves, like he did, we defeat death and participate more fully in his life. So it's a call to self-renunciations, to self-denials, to... Okay. <clears throat> Very quickly, <clears throat> just to quickly review um, in Shakespeare's already aware of the Copernican Revolution. The Copernican Revolution has taken place. You remember in In All's Well, um, God bless. Sorry, I'm in a different text. Um, what's the opening of that? Yeah, Act 2, Scene 3. Um, remember this line in All's Well, Act 2, Scene 3. Lefeu says, this is just after Helena had um, performed the miracle on the king. None of the, the physicians who were trained scientists, scientifically trained physicians, could use the latest knowledge to heal him. Um, she puts her life at risk and says she believes she can with... Um, with what she received from her father. So implicitly in what she's bringing to him is something from the past. It's not what the new sciences offer. Her father was a physician, but he gave her something these men don't know. And she's described, this is so important, remember, she's described as having a third eye. The wisdom he passed on to her um, gave her the wisdom of a third eye. You all know that symbol of the third eye in the middle of the... It, it's usually associated with occult kinds of knowledge that somehow people are given a more penetrating grasp of things. They can see more. She brings those powers to the king and heals him. And it leads Lefeu in Act 2, Scene 3 to say, they say miracles are past and we have our philosophical persons to make modern and familiar things supernatural and causeless. Hence it is that we make trifles of terrors, ensconcing ourselves into seeming knowledge when we should submit ourselves to an unknown fear. That to me is a remarkable statement because you know in the Copernican Revolution, um, Copernicus discovered that the sun was at the center of the universe, not the earth. The earth took its place around the planets, and because it took its place around the planets, 
um, it took its place with eternal things because the planets were thought to eternally take the course that they were. That's why they were associated with gods. Jupiter, Zeus, Mars, you know, Venus. So man could be studied, and he could be studied with some sense that there would be some things in him that were unchanging. Okay? So it, 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 it turned the world upside down. It, it, um, the effect that the discoveries had was to undo the world as people knew it then, truly. Everybody thought, everybody lived by the Ptolemaic scheme of things. The earth was at the center. It was unchanging. Nothing changed. It was a place of death. Everything else was eternal. It had been that way forever. The gods had always been at the planets. Now that's reversed. So it produces this tremendous skepticism. It brings everything into doubt. It even brings into doubt the authority of the Catholic Church because the authority of the Catholic Church was partly identified with the cosmic order of things. So it's a time of radical change and always historically at these moments, when these moments occur, people, people can no longer assume what they believe. They have to question things. So it becomes a time of questioning metaphysical realities. What are the beginnings and ends of things? What is the real nature of things? You all can see the sense of that. We go along in our lives and we think and everything, and then suddenly some new discovery throws, throws things off and we, we have to go back and question our assumptions. That's what was going on. That's what made the Renaissance great. It was a time of new discovering, re-questioning, not taking anything for granted, and looking at metaphysical realities. One of the principles in which the sciences operates is um, that science has to deal with those things that cannot be other than they are. I'll repeat that. They can't be other than they are. They're determinisms, they're necessities, they're predictable. That's what the science rests on. Um, so man, in a sense, is looked at in terms of a mechanism, a determinism. This is knowable, it's fixed, we can know it. Um, you can see that, I mean, I've thought about it a lot. You know, when you go to a, I, 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 when I was younger, I, 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 I may be misreading here, but I, I think of doctors wanting to go into the science as an eye doctor, or a foot doctor, or whatever he is, and you think you're gonna come into this wonderful field, become, let's say become an eye doctor. When you become an eye doctor, you start dealing with mechanisms. There are certain functions to the eyes. If you get glasses, you want a pair of glasses that will help you see here, you'll see here, you'll see, you know, you make an, a, a, di a diagnosis, a prescription, based on the, the, me the mechanics of the eye. If this, then this. That's a fixed structure. And you know that's, I mean, I'm saying that because I've watched, a, I've gone to an eye doctor for surgery and just listened to the things that he was saying and I had to go to a foot doctor and you know, and, look, and just listen to these guys, and it's so clear. I mean, I wonder sometimes when they start, if they don't start with this sense, then you become a doctor. And then you become a doctor, and you start working with these determinisms. Mystery's gone. You know the causes of things. You can prescribe something. The graver danger, the <coughs> place where the great, seems to me, the great adventures take place is when you get into the human soul. Because that's another thing, because the human soul, we believe, has free will. Lots of doctors don't believe that, but um, but it, it, it turned the world on its head. Um, and one of the effects of it was the loss of miracles. And that's what Lefeu is saying here. 
Machiavelli had written, and you know from Machiavelli that Machiavelli is trying to reduce politics to a science. The basic principle of Machiavelli is the ends justify the means. In order for the ruler to get control of his kingdom, he has to do this. If he wants control, he can justify doing away with human life. <coughs> so if the ends are, is order in the kingdom, he, he can do what he has to do to accomplish that end. Human life becomes expendable. Um, the, Ref the Reformation has taken place. These are all modern influences. So Shakespeare is so aware that he's looking back to that Christian world that we've just left, Chaucer's world, and we've entered a new world with all of these problematic areas. Just a couple of things about the Reformation worth mentioning. One is um, two men, the, the Reformation thinkers, the great Reformation thinkers, um, Zwingli, Luther, um, um, Calvin, all believed that man had no free will. That the, the effects of the fall were complete, that man became depraved. That his natural powers were ruined, untrustworthy. Reason was corrupted, flawed. Unless a man had grace, his powers were terribly darkened. The Catholic has never believed that. The Catholic has always believed, the Orthodox Catholic worlds, that man was wounded in the fall. His powers, his natural powers were wounded, but they were left intact. That's why in Dante, we've talked about that, that's why in Dante, the, the, the virtuous pagans, remember, are at the top of hell. They're not punished. They're just left in a darkened world. There's no light because there's no hope. But they're good men. You know, they're not being punished. Lust gluttony, you know, all the others follow that. So, um, so the Catholic has always believed that man's wounded, he can become virtuous and good. He learned that from the pagans, Aristotle, Plato, all of them, Homer, Virgil. But heaven's a supernatural condition. Since it's a supernatural condition, man can't get there on his own. So even if he's virtuous, he can't gain heaven. That's only attainable with Christ. Okay. So Shakespeare's aware of all of this. One of the beliefs the Reformation left us with is that man's depraved. It's only with Christ's grace that he can come out of that depravity. Um, and he is justified by an imputed action. And in some ways, I'm, I'm not sure that there's a more important doctrine in the whole Reformation than that. Man's justified the action of justification is imputed. It's assumed. It's an external act. Man's in a state of sin. Christ's grace surrounds him with an um, external covering. So a man can continue in his sin believing that Christ will save him. The Catholic believes that grace of justification is not imputed. It's offered. It's real. Um, but um, it, it, it's the beginning, the, this justification is the beginning of man's effort to work with God to purify himself. It asks for an inner purification so that man doesn't live by external things. He's, he's, he enters into this work with Christ in order to be changed inwardly. And he believes he can't do that without the help of the sacraments.
that sacraments have a divine quality, that God is imparting those to him, and that through them man enters into this state, what we've called into this action of the theosis. Theosis, that um, he takes on divine qualities. He, because when Christ came, he, he brought his divine nature to us. So one of the things that we're called to in our work with him is to take on those divine qualities ourselves. We become adopted sons of God. We share in his nature. So it's, it's actually a transforming work. It's a work of purification. The Catholics call not to respectability, not to outward respectability. In the, in the Protestant world, the sacrament, holiness is gone. The sacred's gone. In the Catholic world, the sacraments are there. The sacred's there. We're, we're invited to enter into a sacred action. So in Shakespeare, he's there. That's why Shakespeare sets his plays in the naturalistic order. But very often, miracles take place. Extraordinary things take place in his plays. Okay? Um, are we okay? So he, all of those things have taken place. I just want to read th um, three passages from Helen, and then I want to give a really quick overview of, uh, of uh, Merchant. Remember that... Um, Act 1, Scene 1, Parolis and Helena have been talking about virginity, and there's these lines, to, which to me are among the most extraordinary, not in verbal poetic power, but in the, in the kind of insight they, they bring to us, they offer us. Helen and Parolis have been wittily making exchanges about virginity, and we know from Parolis that he's just dismissing it. Either virginity means, he said, get rid of it because until you've had sex, you're not going to bring life in the world. Remain a virgin and, and you, you block off life. He has nothing but contempt for marriage and virginity. He's a cynical man. He's just playing with words. Um, Helena, however, looks at it differently. She says, in response to you, when he says, what will you do with it? Her word, this act, line, act, scene, act one, scene one, line 160. You don't have to go there. You can listen if you don't have the book. Not my virginity, yet, so not my virginity, and she says yet, and pauses for a second, and then says, there shall your master have a thousand loves, a mother, a mistress, a friend, a phoenix, captain, enemy, a guide, goddess, a sovereign, counselor, traitor, and a deer, his humble, now, now she's combining opposites. So she's, what she's saying is, it's only when I bring together opposite things that I'll be able to continue to give him when I'm what I see myself offering him. Um, his humble ambition, proud humility, his jarring concord, his discord dulcet, dulcet is sweet, his faith, his sweet disaster, with a word of pretty fond adoptious Christendoms, that blinking Cupid gossips, that is the way silly young girls talk about this stuff, not her. Now shall he, I know not what he shall, God sent him well. The court's a learning place. She knows when he goes there, he's going to be tempted. It's a place where men and women fool around. The court's a learning place, and he is one, she stops, parolees, 
what one in faith that I wish well. She's not going to complete her thought. What she's just said is that this is. I think it's extraordinary. What she's just said um, is that in her virginity, before the act of sex, a wholeness of love is growing in her that will be the spur to everything she does. So she's making clear that the sexual act, the, the, no, the love that she feels for him is not contingent on the sexual act, on her giving pleasure to a man or his receiving pleasure from her, her taking pleasure from him, his taking pleasure from her. That contract, whatever you want to call it, that exchange doesn't take place. Her love precedes that. So it's prior to anything sexual, it's prior to anything contractual. It's a wholeness in the state of virginity that she's ready to offer him. That's an extraordinary thing in itself. So it's beyond transactions, it's beyond giving the sexual act. It's prior to that. It's in her, um, in her state of virginity. She's going to be everything to him. Um, the, the next important is in the same axiom about line 200. When she's, again, she's med- here she's meditating to herself so that we know that she's not lying, she's not saying something. These are her, this is lyric. She's in her own thoughts now thinking about what's ahead of her. Our remedies often ourselves do lie which we ascribe to heaven. The faded sky gives us free scope only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. We've got the freedom to do things. Um, the things we do often lie in ourselves. The, the faded sky, the destiny, everything around us gives us free scope. We only um, undermine or take away from what we do by a lack of confidence, a lack of belief or convictions. or. Um, only doth backward pull our slow designs when we ourselves are dull. What power is it which mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feed my eye? I can't believe any one of us going into a marriage or a romance ever saw the end of it. I don't think I'm saying that. If, any, in, in, if all of you would go back, if any of you would go back to your first romance, when you were in the throes of a romance, I'm thinking of myself right now, but I'm. If you wanted to say, if you wanted to express your love for your beloved, then could you have found the words to do it? Did you feel that there was something about the, your love that was beyond capturing, that you couldn't quite get the words for it, that whatever you felt was beyond your capacity to get to it? It's like there was something boundless or infinite, and words would never do it. I'm assuming we feel that very often when we give anniversary cards, that the words just don't. You know, she's got this sense that something's beyond her. Um, it's, it's given of something beyond. What power is it that mounts my love so high that makes me see and cannot feed my eye? We have this longing for something more that words can't get to. Yeah, I mean, because, let me make the argument. I believe that, that there's a transcendent nature to our soul. If there is, very few things, if anything in the world, will satisfy it, accommodate it. It'll always be beyond us, no matter how much we, and I believe we're supposed to strive for it. That's why, I mean, that's our faith. That's why Christ came into affirmative. That makes me see and cannot feed mine eye. The mightiest space in fortune nature brings to join like likes. So the separation between her and Bertram 
For, fortune may create that, but nature itself was meant to bring likes together. She's living in a regime which separates people, that separates like from like. Because obviously there's peasants who are, who are born with greater gifts than the nobles, and they'll never come together. The, the, the political structure separates them. The mighty space in fortune nature brings to join like lights and kiss the mighty space in fortune nature brings to join like likes and kiss like native things as if they were meant to be one with each other in affection. Impossible be strange attempts to those that weigh their pains in sense. So if all I do is accept what's there, present to my senses, I don't do anything. I do suppose what hath been cannot be. Miracles were of the past, they can't be anymore. So she's looking at the world and, and seeing it in terms of the obstacles that things present um, and is not going to be daunted. Her love won't allow it. She's going to go ahead. These things will not get in the way. Whoever strove to show her merit that did miss her love, it's love that motivates all of this. The king's disease, my project may deceive me, but my intents are fixed. Now, she knows if she cures the king, it'll give her away to Bertram. One last passage, and then I want to go to... Um, um, this is that scene when you know that they're married, the king forces um, the two Bertram to marry her. And no sooner does do they marry than he, coward that he is, takes off. He will not. He will not hold up his vows. Oh, here I meant to. You know, here. Sorry, this is one of the things. In the in the Protestant Reformation, you know, that um, all of them, to a person, Luther, Calvin, particularly, exalted the private will above the common good. So there is no authority except the person's will. What his private experience of God. The authority of the church, gone. Gone. Who chooses the ministers, the congregations, the authorities there, that's why it shifts and why there's fragmenting. But the private will takes the place of the authority of the church. If the private will is greater than anything, why hold to your vows? If your own private will says it's time to leave, leave. So we went from a condition in the Middle Ages where, all through Chaucer, one of the greatest themes running through almost every one of those stories was a person's vows, holding to it, even when there were difficulties. And that's what Griselda did, despite the idiot things that, you know, Walter, and despite what Bertram's doing. He's, he's, what he's done is says, I'm not going to marry you. That's what he really means, even though he's married. He says, this is never going to be consummated, because I, I won't marry you until this you have a child and get this ring off my finger and he clearly believes neither of those will happen so he puts on her impossible conditions the way Walter did so what's it what's consistent through this whole line through the Middle Ages into modernity is the importance of keeping one's vows if the private will is exalted above everything and you can decide what's right or not there's no reason to hold your vows divorces are, are a commonplace in the Protestant world what I hear from ministers is that it's, it's the great plague that it, the divorce rate is so high in Protestant. I think it's increasing in Catholic also. 
But here's Helena um, suddenly being given this condition. Bertram takes off, and, and her response is this. This is Act 3, Scene 2. She gets the news that he's left. Till I have no wife, I have nothing in France, nothing in France until he has no wife. Thou shalt have none, Rousselian, none in France. Thou, then hast thou all again, poor Lord, is it I that chased thee from thy country and exposed those tender limbs of thine to the event of the non-sparing war? And is it I that drive thee from the sport of court where thou wast shot at with fair eyes to be the mark of smoky muskets? O oh, you leaden messengers that ride upon the violent speed of air, fly with false name. She knows she, what she's doing here is taking on herself what he's done, even though it was his choice. She knows that he's going to be facing, it's like a wife sending her husband off to work each day and feeling that whatever risks are involved in what he does are hers. So she's completely taking on herself all of this, even though it was his choice. And though I kill him not, I am the cause his death was so affected. Better twere I met the raven lion when he roared with sharp constraint of hunger. Better twere that all the miseries which nature owes were mine at once. It would be better if she took on all the, this is like Mary or Eve, it's as if it would be better for her to take on all the miseries of the fall um, um, than for him to be placed in this danger. No, come thou home, Rousselian, whence honor, but of a danger wins a scar, as off it loses all. I will be gone. My being here it is that holds thee hence. I shall stay here to do it. No, although the air of paradise did fan the house, and angels... If she were next to paradise, she would not stay here. She's renouncing everything. She's leaving to make it possible for him to return. She wants to give herself up. I will be gone, the pitiful rumor may report my flight to, con to consolate thy near come night and day. She's entering a darkness. You know that it will take the form of a pilgrimage because she's going to go to the St. James. For with the dark poor thief I'll st steal away. Now just a couple of things here. You know at the end of the play when Helena works the, the plot with, the, with Diana um, that she trades places with Diana and manages to fill the vow. She sleeps with Bertrand, gets the ring off the finger and goes home. The interesting thing again, just to carry this line of thought through, when Diana and the mother return to court with a letter um, unmasking Parolis and Bertrand, the king threatens Diana because when he reads the letter, his first thought is, uh, when he sees the ring on Bertram's finger, he believes there had been some foul play. When he reads the letter with Diana, he charges her to explain it, and she says, I will not do it. He says, explain it. She says, I will not. At, he's, at pain of death, explain it. She says, I will not. She's absolutely loyal in holding to her oath to Helena. The only people in this play who are holding oaths are women. God. <laughs> and she's a maid. She was doing it in friendship, and she knew what she, what she was doing. I mean, this is it's so clear. She was trying to protect her virginity because she did not want to give her virginity up. She wasn't going to become a camp tramp. She was going to let the soldiers use her because that's what goes on in war, men and women. Because <clears throat> there are lots of women who just want to do that. The men, the men aren't forcing them. They do it. Men force them a lot. But that's not what's going on. Diana wanted to pre preserve. She was not going to give in to a man. She was not going to give in to Bertram with all of his seductions. 
So she was doing this in loyalty to a woman because her sense of identity with a woman and her virginity was that great. Now here at the end, the king threatens her with her life and says, explain this to me. And she says, I will not. Helena risked her life when she went to the king. King said, um, you're not going to do this. She said, I can do it. He says, no, 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 again. And, and, and then he says, what are you willing to risk? She says, my life. She risks her life absolutely to do it. She cures him. He honors her by giving her a choice of a husband. The husband, the Lord, was supposed to give obedience to the king. He was supposed to die for him. I mean, the, the whole question of obedience here, you watch when you get into this political world and how it compromises people. Helena is outside that world. She has no interest in that world. What drives her is the wholeness of her love in a, in a, in a virginal state. And that's why I suggested Shakespeare, at some remove, has got Mary on his mind who brought life into the world as a virgin, that there's a wholeness possible there that doesn't wait on sexual exchanges. So it's the women who are holding to something, and it seems it's, it's really interesting in this play the way he connects it with virginity and marriage. Um, the women hold their vows. It's the men who are taking off. Um, one last thing, and I hold on, gee, I just I want to. Um, this doesn't come straight out of the play, but it does direct. I mean, it, to me, it speaks directly enough to it that I'll say this. And you know that I try to stay in the plays as much as I can, but I'm so taken by what Shakespeare's doing because what he's doing is affirming the value of a love that's not contingent on having sex and the pleasures. Because very often, I think most of us know, maybe not it. That very often if, if a man wants sex with his wife and she doesn't want to give it or if she wants to give it, I mean, you know, you're in a world in which sometimes the heat of a moment shows where we are with our desires and what we're witnessing here is a woman whose love isn't contingent on that. It's, and it seems to me it's, you don't have that in a pre-Christian world. That so directly goes back to Mary. The, the, the thing I wanted to say here is that if you look at the play, there are two principles that define the tensions of the play. One of them is lust, and we can see that the effects are disintegrated. They tear down vows. Principle, or, um, Bertram is the exemplar of that. Paroles, the men at camp. Because remember, when, he, when the men are going to expose uh, Paroles, Bertram says, come to me, come with me, and he's going to go to Diana to show how they can have sex. And, and the men know it. They talk about Diane as this woman, and, and Bertram is fully expecting to have sex with her. So on one hand, you have lust, which is disintegrating. It's a disintegrative principle. It tears down. It breaks vows. On the other, you have marriage and holding the two vows, which is integrative. It pulls together. It unites. But the cost of it in the play is what Helena has to go through as a woman. And she's extraordinary. So those two principles are intention, lust and its powers of disintegration, and marriage and its powers of integration, pulling together, particularly when the costs are as great as they are. Um, when, I, when I think about this as a modern, I think about it in terms of abortion today, because we've got open season on lusts, 
because now we can disclaim any responsibility where use a contraceptive, get abortion. People can do what they want. But the effect of it is millions, millions and millions of abortions. Kids are being killed. We've, we've made a legit, I think, I think we're in the middle of a holocaust. That, that's how troubled I am by it. This is a holocaust. It's right in front of us. We're participating in, and acting like it's not there. And this is far worse than anything the Germans did because we believe we're okay. We're, we're excusing murder. Here's what's troublesome to me. It's so clear that Shakespeare is giving a value to virginity that looks back to the Christian Middle Ages, I think ultimately to Mary. Helena, I'm going to argue, you, some of you may disagree, I'm going to argue that Helena is the most Christ-like figure in the story. She holds to her vows no matter what, and she is absolutely resourceful in doing everything she can. And I think I made this point before, T typically, and I may be speaking as a man here too much, I think men grew up thinking they're the ones who are supposed to protect. Traditionally, men have stood, you know, if you draw a circle, if this is the city, if this is the city, the realm of, you know, trial, and this is the home, the man has traditionally always stood here protecting the family because the city is a place of trial. It's a place of vanity and war and struggle and battles and... Um, but the man has seen himself as the protector, the provider, traditionally. In the stories that we've been reading, it's the women who are rescuing men. Again and again and again. They're bringing something, some nurturing, some life-giving quality that the men seem to take for granted. It's as if inherent in the fact that women have wombs, that they can bear life, that they bring something men don't, this nurturing or... Well, what's happened in the modern world is we've got millions and millions of abortion. Lust is protected. People aren't even... In Shakespeare, Helen is the most Christ-like figure in the book. She brings a love that's prior to any... It's not conditioned on a give and take. She loves him freely. She will bring that to what she does. She has no aspirations in this social world. None of those pretensions. Her love is apart from that. And she brings it in a virginal state before they're married. In that trial scene when she chooses a husband, her words are, and now I leave Diane and give myself to the imperial god. She's living, leaving virginity and giving herself to what she calls this imperial god. I mean, I, I think that's Christ the Lord. and It's, it's not a pagan god. It's... Um, the, it seems to me what's implied in all of this, if you look at Parolis, he's a man of words. He, he lives on surfaces. We, I, thought, I thought Tom's comment last night was just, I was so grateful because I thought it was so profound. Remember, Parolis is an image of a man who lives on surfaces, words. He wears these scarves, and he's, he's an image of all that's pretentious in this social world. All these people who want to appear to be, you know, well-received and... But he's a liar, and he's an image of something in Bertrand that Bertram doesn't see in himself. He's false. He's a visible image of something Bertram doesn't see. Finally, at the end, Bertram gets unmasked, and he's going to have to learn to see the bad things in himself. That's what makes it part of the ending. But he's a liar. He's false. He just uses people. Um, there is implied in this play what we've been calling all along this 
anima naturalite naturalite Christiana. This this natural Christian soul, this natural Christian soul. Um, Shakespeare believes that every human being is made in the image of God. That's why he protects the dignity of men. So I think he tries to protect the dignity of Bertram. But he knows that there's something dark. What Tom was calling the false up, this underneath this surface innocence is somebody not good in all of us. But every person is made in the image of God. So that when a woman does give up her virginity, and, and enters marriage and decides to have a child, what she's bringing into the world is an image of God, the naturality Christiana, or the anima naturality Christiana. Um, when a woman gives up her virginity, she, she enters being itself, because being itself, remember, God is I am the am. I am that am. He is being itself. When she gives up her virginity and has a child, she enters being, she participates with God in bringing being into the world because every human has a transcendent immortal soul. She participates with God in creating a human being, an image of God. How many people think that way today? If women believed they were bringing in an image of God, how many of them would make the decision? That is so beyond the pale of our life today. So everything about this play affirms love, virginity, and marriage, and the importance of them, how important they are. And it's interesting that it's, it's those, inter, those elements that Bert, or Helena brings back from Italy to France. And when she does, it helps break down those social structures. She and Bertram are going to marry. So I think Shakespeare's on the, on the verge, on the edge of modernity, and he's, he's dealing with something very modern, looking back to the a Catholic world, of the, this Christ-like spirit that Helena has, and, and as a woman, how it distinguishes her from the men. Um, I don't think it's the end. I don't think the end is a good ending. I mean, people can read that differently, but if, I, I'm just taken by what she does as a woman, you know, in this political world and the way Shakespeare is affirming um, something Christ-like and self-giving, and in a world in which everybody's doing things for the most part for themselves. It's, um, anyway, let me stop there. I want to take a few minutes with Merchant and then finish, but to fill this out. Any questions or comments? Jay, you had your hand up for a while. Yeah, I had a slightly lighter note, but you mentioned the limitations of uh, anniversary cards. And in my 38 years of experience of shopping for those, I'm convinced that every card from a husband to a wife, the first line is always an apology. I'm sorry I've been such an insensitive, inarticulate jerk all year, but I still love you. I mean, <laughs> the view of what a husband is as reflected in the modern greeting card is amazing. <laughs>
Anybody else? Okay, you said you're going to comment on the Merchant of Venice, and then what? I mean, we've heard so many different, the order we're, of what you're going to do next. Sorry, Linda, we're, we're, doing, I'm, we're doing a review of Merchant, just very, I'm going to pass over some things really lightly just to pull this. We're doing Othello, we'll do a review. So next week we'll come back to Merchant, because Merchant and Othello are both set in Venice. So we'll do a review. I'll just pick up with Merchant again next week, just quickly touch on some things, and then focus on Othello. That's my attempt to get Venice out. Um, so we're looking at ourselves, and, and then we're doing uh, Anthony and Cleopatra. And then we're doing what we're not doing. <laughs> we're not doing the Scarlet Letter. <laughs> And then after the Scarlet Letter, we're doing Elliot's Murder in the Cathedral. So are we going to get to murder this year? I was going to say, are we going to get to murder of the cathedral before Christmas? I don't know. I don't know how long. I'm, I'm going to allow probably a, a month for Scarlet. I don't know how long it'll take us to get through Scarlet. I was maybe a month. My guess is that we'll, I don't know, we'll see. But what I'd like to do is, I'm, I'm not pushing on anything. I, I mean, would this spring, we'll do Murder and Dostoevsky, and that will do it. Somewhere, I mean, loosely, however we manage that. Until you think of something else. No. <laughs> Bev, I'm not going to do that. Really serious. It really, it, this comes to an end because I can't think of anything important enough that goes to Christ. To, Dostoevsky will do it. If we do anything, to me, it would be pre-Cana to look at this. But I, unless you guys come up with something, I'm glad. To hear your suggestions and anything you guys want to do, I, um, I, I really don't want to make this literature. You know that as much as it is everything about his literature. I'm trying to open our world and Christ. I think Helena to me is an extraordinary person. Um, Portia is too. Here, let me let me go to Merchant very quickly. See if I can. If if you've got the play. If you don't, it doesn't even matter. But I want to just touch on some of the most important things about Merchant, um, just to help fill out this modern world. In All's Well, we've got a woman whose love of a man becomes a power great enough to, to act as, I don't know to call it a solvent, of a, a a decaying aristocratic order. France is in decay. The, the court is in decay. The king's dying. Bertram's father's dying. Helena's father's died. It's and it's incestuous. It's ingrown. The opening lines say the count says, "You're going to inherit a father and a husband or a son." It's very ingrown because in a world of privilege, the the privileges um, get passed on between the same people. They they don't go to the peasants or those in other classes. That's why America was so important. That's why France and America, France and America have been critical of England because England made a compromise. They held on to their aristocracy. There's the belief still that some people are better than others by birth. America, the American and French revolutions did away with that. They said that can't keep us from kissing like to like. You know. So in All's Well That Ends Well, we've got a woman whose love is great enough to actually, she has no, she's not a rebel, she's not trying to, she's not a feminist, she's not starting a revolution. 
It's her love of a man that's great enough that works to take away, the, to soften those, to begin to take away those boundaries. So, so we're, on the modern words in that sense, we're looking towards a moment when those stratifications will go away because the French Revolution is 150 years, 150 years off. Like she's really, a, I think of her as a prototype, but... In Merchant of Venice, we're, we're, in, we're in the world which Helena went to to bring that back to France. She's going to Italy because it's in Italy that all of this is starting, because it's in Italy, remember, that these communes first developed, these new ways of looking at our human nature, where men are free to take risk to try to improve their lives. They take responsibility more completely for their own lives. They're not under the pope, they're not under the emperor. Men are left to work out their own destinies. She goes to that world. That's not an accident. I think Shakespeare is symbolically saying she's bringing something back from, um, from, from Italy. In Venice, we know from the opening lines, those of you who are, you don't, if you've got them, good, and if you don't, don't worry about it. Antonio says, in sooth I know not why I'm so sad, it wearies me, you say it wearies you, but how I caught it, found it, came by it, what stuff it is made of, whereof it's born, I am to learn, I am such a want, which sadness makes me, that I have much ado to know myself. We know, if you go back to that opening, Solerio and Solanio, give the, I've said this before, the opening words, the opening scenes, give away everyone of Shakespeare's plays. We've got a man who's sad, and the opening makes clear one of the reasons he's so sad is he's alone, absolutely alone. His two friends come to him, and the reasons they give for his sadness are, if I had my ventures at sea, I'd be sad too. One of them even says, what harm a wind too great might do at sea, I should not see the sandy hourglass run, in a way of measuring time, but I should think of shallows and of flats and see my wealthy Andrew docked in and veiling her high-top tower lower than her ribs to kiss her burial. Should I go to church and see the holy... So when he looks at a time mechanism, he thinks of winds and time. He goes to church and he looks at the altar made of stone and he immediately thinks of rocks. When you go to church, where should your mind be? It should be on this intersection of time between here and eternity. That's where we're supposed to be. These men have nothing more on their minds than what's going on to protect their financial interests. So in the commercial regime, people are so preoccupied with business, they can't see something without seeing in terms of risks to their business. That's the ethos. Remember, if you take the Platonic cave, again, every cave, in a sense, is adopted to its own ethos. In France, Plato's cave was presented in terms of an aristocracy. That's the cave for them. Here we're in a cave, but the, the terms of the cave are profit, success, comfort, security. That's the cave. That's what determines the way. That's why Shakespeare can do this. So when he shows these men engaging, they're both of them, these are friends, projecting their own interests on him. They can't be farther away from understanding. In fact, they're the cause of it. Who connects in Venice? People are so preoccupied with business and success, they're missing. They're missing each other. So Bassanio comes to Antonio, says he wants to take out a loan. He's already taken out loans and lost them, but Antonio's going to do it again. He goes to um, Shylock 
And Shylock stand, says he will stand for the loan so long as he has a bond. This is Act 1, Scene 3. Antonio says he'll stand for the bond, a pound of flesh. And Bassanio says, I'm not going to let you do that. Well, this is how serious he is, because he immediately lets him do it. Shylock's response, Oh, Father Abram, what these Christians are, whose own hard dealings teaches them to suspect the thoughts of others. Pray you tell me this, if you should break his day, what should I gain by the exaction of the forfeiture? A pound of man's flesh taken from a man is not so estimable, profitable neither, as flesh of muttons, beef, or goats. What's the worth of a body? It's not going to bring anything in. It won't give me as much money as muffin, muffins, beefs, or goats. Muttons, sorry. I say to buy his favor, I extend it. He's, he's acting like he's doing him a favor. We know eventually that he's not. What do we learn about the human body and the human person just from these opening? And the other thing I should remember when they talk about making this and offering this loan, Shylock's talking about, remember he gives the example of breeding sheep and showing to show how resourceful he was, that he's more resourceful than Antonio. He, he, he um, likens himself to Jacob when Jacob used that ploy to, to make the sheep multicolored. Sonia says, is, is this your way of using the Bible to support yourself? Um, Shylock, I cannot tell um, uh, was this inserted to make interest good because he charges? Shylock stays in business because he takes advantage of people's neediness. It's people's difficulties that make them turn to somebody for money. So he makes his living on the difficulties of other people and he charges interest. And we know from the play that Antonio gives money freely. If he gives it, it's as a friend. Was this inserted to make interest good, or is your gold and silver used in rams? I cannot tell. I make it breed as fast. Antonio later said, For when did friendship take a breed for barren metal of his friend? Friends don't use difficulties to take advantage of friends and increase their money. They don't use it to make money breed. Shylock does. So Venice is the sterile city. There are no marriages. There's no breeding. What breeds is money. The whole preoccupation of the Venetian world, the commercial republic, is success. To make money breed, to increase interest. People are preoccupied. It defines their life. I would think if anybody were to go into therapy, I mean, you'd have to have some awareness of how defining how obsessed we are with control, security, <coughs> money, success, image, that all those, all those things we've just defined. Pleasure, power, wealth, image. Remember, those are the goods that Boethius said are good, but they become really harmful because we make them more important than God. And they end up cracking our lives. Um, you know that what happens, um, but, um, Shakespeare, Charlotte gives Bassanio the money, um, it, it makes it possible for him to go to um, Portia. Portia herself has to undergo an ordeal. Okay, so um, there are ordeals in Venice and Belmont. The people on, in Belmont, or in, in Venice, are held to contracts. They have to <coughs> obey the law. Because without those contracts, people won't enter into business 
and they won't risk. Portia's facing the same thing because she has to be obedient to her father's law. The father said at this ordeal, she, um, she has to give herself to whoever chooses. So um, her obedience is great, except it has a different motive. It's not money, it's marriage. And you know that in the ordeal that she undergoes, it gives away men, the, the way men look at women. There's um, Morocco, Aragon, and Bassanio. Morocco chooses the gold because he wants what all men desire. He wants this outward value. Aragon chooses the silver because he wants what all men deserve, and he thinks he deserves it. Bassanio chooses the lead, remember, because the principle is, he who chooses me must hazard all he has. He has to risk everything for her, and he does. You know that Portia's helping out with the music behind, I don't want to go there, but um, it's interesting to me that she doesn't tell him she can't, and if she did, it would just do away with it. The, the, whole, the, the whole interest is he's left to do it. But it's, it's an indication of some worth in him because he's, you know, it's about feeding fancy and fancy dying because the, one of the issues here is that we're so taken by our senses, the outward surface of things, the gold, or what we think we deserve, that they do. put women in the same situation. How many women choose men in their pride of possession? that this man will give me a house and gold and jewelry and, or women who say, I deserve better than this. How many women will say, who, who, who give up everything for the man they love? That's exactly what Portia does after the scene. When he chooses her, remember her first act is to give him everything. She says, all that I have is yours. So the two of them enter into a marriage having begun by offering themselves completely to each other. That's the isn't what Portia does in the, sorry. <laughs> Isn't what Portia does during the casket scene a, a, a precursor of what's to come? Go ahead. Well, it, you know, instead of adhering to, if, if she was going to adhere directly to her father's oh. law, she would not have intervened at all. Why do but you say she, that? Who but, says that? Pardon? On, on, give me the ground on which that says. Who says that? You say that. Well, I mean, if you look at what you look at what's going on in Venice with all of the guys you know it's 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 the law that that matters right and none of them try to intervene with that well they do the Christians say take it away well no, but I'm just but but they don't I mean uh, to me what 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 happens during that casket scene is Porsche's beginning to give us a, a, a vision of the fact that there's something beyond the law and 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 she and she, sees it. she takes she yeah it's carpe diem I mean she seizes the opportunity <laughs> to you know work within the law but get a different yeah. to get the the end that she wants right or and, the end and we just see that in and it's in the end it, it's you know she she's very proactive in yeah in finding a balance between yeah. love and the law yeah yeah the the interesting. I mean, it's hard, you know, we're, we don't have enough in the play to, to give much evidence for anybody's, but yes, but one of the interesting things that I would say in response to that is, she doesn't, I, I don't want to take away from the courage that she showed in doing that, and the humility. Because if you go back through the scene, I want to do everything I can to hold on to the courage and not compromise it anywhere, is, is why I'm trying to take a strong, a, a strong stand here. 
when she when she greets each of the men, um, uh, Morocco, Aragon, she makes it clear really graciously, absolutely graciously, um, that that um, if 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 they choose correctly, she's theirs. So she's doing nothing to undermine. You know, she doesn't take it. She gives herself completely. I, I want to make that as clear as I can, just before we go. Um, she does everything she can to be obedient. And she makes that clear in how gracious she is with each of those men. She's given her life to men she, she doesn't want. When she sees Bassanio, her first response is stay longer. She doesn't want to go through the ordeal. She wants to enjoy the time with him because she sees the goodness in him. She didn't see any other men. She's prepared to sacrifice herself for her father's law with no, nothing mitigating, nothing extenuating. It's a question in my mind, given what you've said, um, because she doesn't, she doesn't give it away. She helps. So the, my way of putting it was she, she works with what he does, not outside of her. So that's your point, because yeah. in the end, that's what she does as well. Yes, yes. It's a serious question in my mind whether the father didn't know that. He had to know that daughter. He's putting his daughter under a real ordeal. Any father who, who says that of a daughter is taking a serious stand. Um, so it's just a question. I can't, you know, there's no evidence in the play. But it's hard for me to believe that he would do that if he didn't know her. Because, there, because everything about that casket scene shows what a wisdom he has and how much he loves her good. Like Portia for the good of the law. He's not being arbiter. He, he's taking a tough stand because he knows the good of the human being. You know, what a human has to do to be good. And obedience, holding to a vow, obedience is crucial. Anyway, let me just pass on that. The, the ordeal is taken. You know that Bassanio gives everything she does. They go back to the courtroom. And then we face, I think, what's the fundamental problem in Venice. They try to persuade Shylock to give up his bond. And he says, um, it will light on your city's freedoms. Do away with the bond, you destroy the city. Because if you do away with the bond, who's going to risk entering contracts? He says, I want my bond. What's really interesting in the passages that unfold there is that he makes serious criticisms of the Christian that are all deserving. The hypocrisies of the Christians. You, you have slaves, you know, who's going to say, I want my bond? What he's doing is using wrongs, and they're serious wrongs, to justify himself. What he makes clear is he wants to kill. His motive is murder. He doesn't want justice, he wants to kill. So he's using the law to justify murder. The Christians, on the other hand, say, show mercy. So if you hold the bond, Antonio dies. This is the guy, this, I mean, it's so, he begins the play saying, I don't know why I'm so sad. There's something wrong in Venice. The ultimate end, death. Hold of the bond, he's gone. Give up, give up the bond to save him, the city's gone. So in either case, the city goes down, the commercial regime's destroyed. The problem she's facing is to hold on to the bond, but in a way that serves a goodness in the law that Shylock can't see. And you remember what she does is say, okay, go ahead and take, and you can see Shylock sort of licking his lips. I mean, he, he, he just, I mean, it's really played up. He, he wants to kill Antonio. Um, she says, go ahead. They bring in that, and he says, now do this, but you can't 
Or let me ask you, do you remember? What, how does she do this? What does she do to not give in to the extremes on either side of her? Go ahead Shylock on the one and the Christians on the other. Go ahead and take your pound of flesh, but don't, don't let him bleed. Right. Because that's not part of the contract. Right. So for her, for her, what's the end of the law? That both the Christians and the Jews, the two, the two testaments are the basis for reading the law. Wait, I, I just this has to be underlined. The conflict at the center of this commercial regime are two forms of law: Old Testament Christian, and they're at odds. And by the way, I just I want to underscore this: at every Catholic mass, every, absolutely every Catholic man, we just heard it today. My father's ways, my father's laws, teach me my. At every Mass, there's an Old Testament and a New. Did Christ ever do anything to abrogate, to undermine his Father's law? Absolutely not. It's why we have the two every day. Christ would have never done anything to disobey his Father or undermine his laws. What he did was not give credence to the 660-some ritual observances that were accretions to the law. But how could he go against his father's law when that's his father? The whole effort of the church, our church, should be to reconcile justice and mercy. The tendency of Christians is to see mercy as nullifying, abrogating, doing away with You've been hearing me harp on this for years. What's going on in the play? Portia has to bring the law and mercy together. What's the end of the law for her that makes what she does possible? Is that clear? What does she do? What's the end of the law for her? As it would have been for God, the Father. Freedom. Well, freedom is the basis of the regime. They want that. Do they use their freedom well? I'm not sure that freedom's the end of it. I think, I think she points out the flaw in the interpretation of the law. That, you know, law is created by man and is therefore, by definition, flawed. And if you, I mean, to me, it's kind of like what Christ was saying about the law then, is that if you adhere strictly to the law, it is, you know, it is subject to your interpretation of that law. And that's where the mercy aspect of this thing comes in, is you have to bridge the gap between the absolute word of the law and what the intent was. Yeah. So is it the common good? I was going to say, I think the intent of the law is the goodness of man. <clears throat> That that's you look what, at any court in the land now, and when when a contract gets challenged, the question always is to the court is what was the intent mm -hmm. of the contract, or what was the and intent so often of the law? in our world, our, I, just to make a distinction because I want to be careful here. So often the laws that we make are not good. A Catholic, a Catholic who knew his traditions, would would believe in what according to our world, is called natural law, the natural law tradition, divine law. We tend to dismiss law. In a Protestant world, a, a modern scientific world, we tend to dismiss law. Catholic holds on to it. The ultimate, con God has his law. The ultimate source of law is God and his law. The Father made it clear. Father didn't want to hurt anybody, but his laws were, 
given to us to help us answer our evils and become good. The ultimate source of law is divine law. The link between divine law and human law is what we call natural law, the natural law tradition. There are laws in God's nature. We very often make laws, what we call positive laws, human laws, that are bad, that are out of accord with natural law and divine law. I think Portia's intent is why she doesn't want to do away with the law, because she knows if she does, it's going to destroy Venice. If she doesn't hold up the law, she's got to do it, but she can't do it with, the motive, with Shylock's motives, which is to kill, or the Christians who want mercy. Because either one by itself is a disaster. St. Thomas said, mercy without law is the mother of disasters. If you don't enforce laws, you're taking away the protections that the laws give us. What she wants to do is hold on to that law because she knows if you do away with it, you're facing disasters. It's going to undermine the very people of the city. She's got to interpret that in a way to bring out good. That is real justice. And that's what she does with Antonio, even with Shylock, with what she does with the penalties that go to him. But here's my question, because I want, and I'll just ask these, and, and then I'm going to leave, because we can pick up here when we get back. When they're in the courtroom scene, now remember, Antonio's sad. The men completely misread him. Of course I know where you're sad. If I had, if I had my investments out, I'd be sad too. They, they can't see past their own self-interest. I mean, when one, in one sense you see the heart has been taken out of humans in this world. There's something missing. People don't relate. They're too busy with work. Friendships are gone. There are no marriages, no friendships. Um, in, in the courtroom scene, remember, um, Gobo doesn't know his son, father and son know each other. Remember, Lancelot, Gobo doesn't know his son. Jessica's leaving his father. Families are disintegrating. The authority of the father's gone. The authority of the father's gone. It's only, it only exists in Belmont, outside this regime. In the courtroom, um, Portia's taking the men through the trial and about ready to turn over the hanky to Shylock and the knife so he can have his pound. I mean, she, I just find, you can watch her doing this, like, because she, it, she's so sure of what she's doing. She's acting out of love and a sense of justice. She's not going to waver on that. That's her trial. I mean, there's a trial going on. One aspect of it is she's got to hold to what she's doing. Once she's doing this, um, Antonio's given up his life. He says, let it go. He's sacrificial. In some ways, he's a little bit like Christ. He's ready to give up his life for his friend. And then Bassanio says, Antonio, I am married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself, but life itself, my wife, and all the world are not with me esteemed above thy life. I would lose all. I sacrifice them all here to this devil to deliver you. Now, I just said, I'll give up my wife, I'll give up this. Portia says, your wife would give you little thanks for that if she were near to you to make the offer. <laughs> Remember, she's in disguise. I, I want you to hold on to this, because this to me is extraordinary. As if he didn't get the hint, Graziano, these, by the way, I want to, these noble Christians, look how noble, look, I'm going back to Bertram, and look how noble these men are. Um, he's just heard the judge, doesn't know it's for it, say that, and Graziano says, I have a wife who I protest I love. 
put on a car. Of course, say I love you. <laughs> I wish she were in heaven so she could entreat some power to change this courage Jew. <laughs> He's ready to send her for heaven. This noble, this noble Christian. Nerissa, tis well you offer it behind her back. The wish would make else an unquiet house. Okay. Both men, these Christian, and Shylock says, these Christian men, the last thing we want to do is have his daughter married. For good cause. These men are showing how noble they are in asking their wives to make these great sacrifices. Here's my question. Wait, wait. So in the next scene when they leave, they offer thanks to, to, to Portion or as the judges. They don't know that they're their wives. <laughs> anyway, um, the women decline, and the two men, no, no, let us give you something. And the women say, okay, you're going to do that. If you're going to insist, so give me the ring. And they say, no. And so they say, oh, this is the way you want to make a gesture. So they do everything they can to get the ring. So the men give their rings. Now think about rings in all's well, because rings have been crucial here. Helena had to get that ring off of Bertrand's finger to validate, to affirm, make real their marriage. She finally does. The, the whore, the, the sort of the camp process, she's not, you know. Um, Diane said, I want that ring. Bertram said he wouldn't give it. He gave it, finally gave it. So this whole question of rings and, um, and what men do. Anyway, you know that when the men get home, the women are going to take them apart in this. They, there's those last passages where they said, I'm going to sleep with the men. Uh, we're, not, we're not going to be with you until we sleep with the men who took them. And the men are outraged because they don't want... The, the thought that their wives would even be sleeping and, you know, they're feeling very stupid and the women are breaking clothes over there. My question here, and, and I think we'll stop, is what is it about this Venetian world that makes these men so like? What's the difference between Venice as a commercial regime and Belmont? Because it's only in Belmont where there's this harmony and this beauty this order, the philosophy, you know, that um, Portia was raised on, she had Aristotle behind her. What's wrong with Belma, I mean with uh, Venice? What is it about Venice that makes men so like, or people, because the women enter it today, that, that undermines the very best things that are in Belmont? And right now it's particularly in the men, because they're just, you know, um, but there's wine. And Tony, I'm married to a wife which is as dear to me as life itself. It's just here's Parolis. Talking, words. He this these this is Paroli speaking. <coughs> and Tony, I'm married to a wife which is dear to me. He's these are words, he means them. She's as dear to me as life itself. But life itself, my wife and all he doesn't see the irony between what he's saying, words on the surface, and their deeper implications. He's sounding really noble, but he's giving up his wife, and, and Portia's responding appropriately. Your wife would give you little thanks for that. What wife wants to learn that her husband's willing to sacrifice her? What's going on in Venice that makes men so light? Let me leave it. That makes men so light. What's wrong? And what is it, what is it in Belmont that acts as a corrective to this world? Portia... I'm assuming if Portia had gone to law school, she would not have been able to do this. Shakespeare's showing it comes from something else. What is that? She has a wisdom that comes from somewhere. We, 
we'll pick up with these questions and we're doing Othello. So we will be, we'll be looking at the comic and tragic aspects. And when we look at Othello, here's the question. Where does, so in this play, The Lightness of Men, when we get to Othello, where does Iago, what is it about Venice? What is it about Venice that gives Iago this power that he can control almost anybody he works with? What is Shakespeare showing us about Venice and in the case of Othello, the way in which Venice makes an opening for evil? There were times during this that I wanted to see if I could make an opening for you to talk about the shadow. So maybe, Nick, when we do Othello, I hope, I hope we can do that. Well, the, the collective shadow. Shadows. The shadows. The shadow knows. The shadows for the other. 